0: As you know, during this season of the year, I've set aside the series on Matthew, where we've been for a couple of years. But uh, I would like to ask that we turn now back to the first chapters of Matthew's Gospel. I thought it would be helpful if we returned to these first chapters on the Sunday before Christmas, and again on Christmas, and looked again at what Matthew has to say by divine inspiration about the birth of Christ. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, we will begin reading at verse 1 through verse 17, but let us first bow in prayer. Almighty Father and our God, we pray for the powerful working of your Holy Spirit. We know that expository preaching is not something that the world cares about, and unhappily many in your church do not. But this is the call of the minister. The authority is in the text to expound the text that is before us. And we pray that every heart of every believer will thrill to hear the word of God read and proclaimed. We ask that you will work within the hearts of those who are estranged from Christ to draw them by the powerful working of your Holy Spirit through this word to come to Jesus and put their faith in him. And they indeed will have the merriest Christmas of all. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shaltiel, and Shaltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Aviud, and Aviud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I realize that this is not the kind of text that you generally spend a lot of time with, Most of us do not go to the genealogies of the Bible and and spend time trying to understand the names that we find there. As a matter of fact, in our Bible reading, we generally read very quickly through the genealogy and on to the next portion of Scripture. But there's something you can know about the genealogies of the Bible that will always help you. Even when you don't know anything about them, you don't know the names, it is a privilege to be numbered among the people of God. Now we come to this genealogy regarding the birth of Christ in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, and it is filled with dramatic interest. It is filled with truth, and it points us to the greatness of our Savior and to the salvation that we have in Him and to the message of Christmas. As we come to this genealogy then, I want to see several things with you, and the first thing is this, three truths underlying the genealogy. Three truths underlying the genealogy. That's the first thing. The first truth that underlies the genealogy that we have read in Matthew's Gospel is that God is the superintender of history. He is the one who rules and reigns and who is sovereign over history. Who would have known as history unfolded that God was preparing the world for the birth of Christ? Yes, for his people there were prophecies, indications, and hints to look forward to the one who was coming. But who would have known in the world at large? And even the prophets did not always understand and certainly did not fully understand the prophecies that were given to them. You see, God still has a plan, people of God. And you, Christian, are integral to that plan. Your part in that plan is God's ordained place for you. You may say, my place in the kingdom of God is so small, and I seem to be doing so little, and my life seems to be so insignificant, but that is not true. Your part is just the stitch that he intends to bring his tapestry of history to its conclusion. And so God's superintendence of history is the first truth that underlies this genealogy. The second truth that we find is the authority of the Word of God, the authority of Scripture. This genealogy is largely dependent upon the Old Testament. The Old Testament, as with the New, is God's Word. God has spoken. What a privilege to be able to say in our darkened day to our generation that doesn't know what to believe, that dwells in darkness, that a great light has shown, that Christ has come, and that God has spoken in his word, and that ultimately this Bible is one book because there is one divine author, hence the Bible is authoritative as God's interpretation of life. God has spoken, and that is good news. Now the third truth that underlies this genealogy is the covenant of grace, by which we mean in the sweep of redemptive history, God's covenant to save his people, his overarching plan that was begun in eternity past, if you can even speak of a beginning because it is eternal. God's plan to save humanity fall in an atom that is worked out in time and in space. There really was an atom There really was a fall of man. There really is the sovereign grace of God in history as God unfolds his eternal plan to save his own. And God's covenant of grace with all its rich promises to save his people is certain and it is secure and it is irrevocable. So that not a sin of his own purchased with Christ's own blood and redeemed by him, not a sin will be recorded in God's role because of what God has done in history as he has established his covenant of grace with his people. Now, those are the three presuppositions that underlie this genealogy. God's superintendence of history, the authority of Scripture, the covenant of grace. Now, the second thing that I want us to see together is the king described. The king described, and we find it in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now let's unpack that verse. First of all, as we see the king described, he is described as the promise of a new beginning. This genealogy has connections with that genealogy we read in the fifth chapter of Genesis, after the sin of man and the fall of man. We read in that genealogy this awesome refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. The wages of sin is death. Death has been brought into the world because of our fall in Adam. Now we come to this genealogy in which there are connections with that one as well. And we see that this birth represents the new creation. That there is a new beginning. So that all of us who now are in the line and union with Christ, of us it will be said, and he lived, and he lived, and he lived, and he lived. Because of what Jesus has done. The blessing of the last Adam over the rebellion of the first. Is there someone here and you need a new beginning? The new beginning is found right here in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 1. It is Jesus Christ. But not only is the king described as the promise of a new beginning, he is described as the coming Messiah. It is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus, according to verse 21 of Matthew 1, is the name that God gives to his Son as he is sent into this world. It means Savior. We'll see more about that next week, Lord willing. But also, he is called the Christ, which means Messiah, which means the Anointed One. And all through the Old Testament, there was the promise in 1 Samuel 2.10, he will give strength to the king and exalt the power of his anointed, so kingship And messiahship, anointing, are connected. This is the one anointed to come into this world that he might save us from our sins, the coming Messiah. But also he is described as the king. He is described as the son of David. Look at the verse again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And we read in verse 6, And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Why then this emphasis? There is a recurrent title that we find of Jesus in the book of Matthew, and it is the son of David. It is Old Testament language that speaks of the one who would come and sit on David's throne in sovereign majesty. This is the son of whom we read in Isaiah 9, who is given extravagant titles, wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. And other places in the New Testament emphasize this as well. So Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, the one who came, is David's greater son, who now sits upon David's throne in sovereign majesty. But also he is described as the heir of the covenant promises, You see it here. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why emphasize this? Because the covenant that was made with Abraham was this. In your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And Matthew chapter 1 already anticipates the 28th chapter of Matthew in which there is the promise that this good news of the blessing of Abraham to the nations, the gospel of Christ, will be preached To the Gentiles. It's the covenant sealed in Jesus' own blood. And so the king is described. He is the promise of the new beginning. He is the coming Messiah. He is the king. He is the heir of all of the covenant promises through which the world would be blessed. And you need him as your new beginning. You need him as your anointed Messiah. You need him as the king and ruler of your life. And you need him to fulfill the covenant promises For you, for your salvation. And in his perfect time, the Father brought his Son and all human history prepared for his birth. There's a third thing I want us to see in this genealogy, and that is God's grace in Israel's history. God's grace in Israel's history. You see how God has walked with his people through history, he has not simply intersected and then left. He has walked in covenant faithfulness with his people throughout history, and he is walking with us still. Now, this is summarized for us in verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Why, this is a summary of Old Testament history, is it not? From Abraham to David, the covenant that is made with Abraham, the enslavement of the people of God, their exodus out of Egypt, the giving of the law at Sinai, Joshua, Judges, Saul, all the way to the anointing of David as king. From David to Babylonian captivity, which includes the monarchy and the divided kingdom and the destruction of Jerusalem, is God there in dark times? Yes, he is in dark times. And from Babylonian captivity to the coming of Christ we find this emphasized as well. You know, in verses 12 through 15, these names that we find here, we have no external history available to us for many of these names. It includes those years of silence between Malachi and Matthew, between Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, and the coming of John the Baptist who cried, "'Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world.'" In other words, this is an obscure portion. We know very little about it. Why? Because we are told that Jesus is a root out of the dry ground. We are told that he is the king, but the world would not recognize his pedigree. We are told that he comes from obscurity. Charles Spurgeon, in his little commentary on Matthew, puts it this way. He is the poor man's king. He will not disdain any of us Though our father's house be little in Israel, he will condescend to men of low estate. Now that's God's grace in Israel's history. And from it I want to draw two very important truths. The first truth that we want to draw from this third point, God's grace in Israel's history, is something we've already mentioned but we need to spend some time on. And that is the providence of God in history. God's sovereign rule and his sovereign reign in all of history. What can be more encouraging than that? You know, that's really one of the great messages of Christmas, isn't it? God's sovereign rule of history, his providence. Here you have Caesar Augustus determining that all the world should be enrolled. Where did that come from? Well, it was a whim on his part, but it was decreed by God. We have Passages such as Micah 5:2, but thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto thee, who is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. 750 years before the birth of Messiah, that prophet prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem of Judea. How did it happen? God's sovereign superintendence of history. Now, I love the way that Jonathan Edwards speaks of the providence of God, and I want you to hear what he has to say. God's providence may not not unfitly be compared to a large and long river, having innumerable branches beginning in different regions and at a great distance from one another, and all conspiring to one common issue. After their diverse and apparent contrary courses... They all collect together, the nearer they come to their common end, and at length discharge themselves at one mouth in the same ocean. The providence of God, then, his rule and reign of history is like a long and and deep river with all of the various tributaries that work into it. And yet, if you stand beside one of those tributaries, all you see is the river or stream or creek before you. You do not see how it began. You do not see where it is going. That is you and that is me in our lives. We stand at these various tributaries and we do not understand what God and His providence is doing. At least, we do not understand the details. And so Edwards goes on to put it this way The different streams of this river are apt to appear like mere confusion to us because of our limited sight. "...whereby we cannot see the whole at once. A man who sees but one or two streams at a time cannot tell what their course tends to. Their course seems very crooked, and different streams seem to run for a while different and contrary ways. And if we view things at a distance, there seem to be innumerable obstacles and impediments in the way, as rocks and mountains and the like to hinder their ever uniting and coming to the ocean. But yet if we trace them, they all unite at last and all come to the same issue, disgorging themselves into one and the same ocean. Not one of all the streams fails. Now I want to say this in a way that if the Lord is pleased, this will deepen your walk and communion with God. People of God here today, are some of you in darkness You don't understand what God is doing. You don't understand what's happening in your life. You cannot explain the pain. You cannot explain your circumstances. The truth of the matter is that is ordained for his glory and for the good of his people and the extension of his kingdom. He has promised that even though you are standing at this tributary and all you see is what is immediately before you, it had a source in his eternal love for you. It is gathering together in that one long, deep river that will eventually pour out into the fulfillment of his eternal plan. That is the message of Christmas. That God has brought his son into the world through his eternal plan and he is saving a people and in his sovereign providence superintended and continues to superintend history and will bring all of his people to that glorious conclusion that he has determined by his sovereign providence so that leaf or blade, fruitful or lean years, come what may in your life, it comes from the the Father's hand for his glory and for your good. Take that to heart and let that deepen your walk in communion with him. And so that's one truth that comes to us as we think of God's grace in Israel's history, but there's another I want to mention. And it is this, that God throughout this history was separating for himself a people to bring Christ into the world, and now he has separated a remnant to proclaim Christ to the world. And we are a part of that remnant as believers in Jesus. We are redeemed and separated with a calling in life. And what is that calling? The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Titus chapter two, eleven and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Just as throughout history he gathered Israel in order that he might bring the Messiah to the world, now he gathers to himself a people who are zealous to proclaim his name by word and by their deeds. We are then separated for this calling. That means that you're different if you're a believer in Jesus, and are to live differently than the world around you, child of God. I remember D. Martin Lloyd-Jones saying somewhere, we, we seem to have a real horror as Christians of being different, and yet we're called to be different, to think differently, to have different affections than the world, to live differently than the world around us, if indeed we are to be lights in a dark place. But let's move on. I want us to see a fourth thing in this genealogy, and the fourth thing that I want you to see is quite exciting indeed to me, and it is that Jesus came for sinners of all types. He came for men and women. Now, did you notice that there are women in this genealogy, which in a first-century Jewish setting would have been most unusual, would, would be really unheard of? Very peculiar in a Jewish context. Why? Because Jesus came for men. Jesus came for women. He came for children. He came for people of all races. He came for people who are from all walks of life. He came for people like you and like me. And this is shown in particular in the women who are highlighted in this passage. Notice them with me in verse 3. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron. Do you remember Tamar? A Canaanite woman. God took away her husband and the next oldest brother. And Judah promised to raise up children by his third son Shelah. And Judah failed to keep the promise, and Tamar tricked Judah into sexual relations, and Perez and Zerah were born. Tamar and Perez are part of Judah's line. God's grace for the downcast. Jesus, what a friend for sinners, seen all the way back in Genesis chapter 38. We have another woman mentioned in verse 5. Look at it and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed. Rahab. Rahab is called the harlot. She was a Canaanite who lived in Jericho and protected the Jewish spies and helped God's people enter the city to conquer it. She trusted in Christ by believing the bit of gospel message that she received in that environment. And this woman, Rahab the harlot, is an ancestress of Christ. Is there a woman here today who, who is living a life that is immoral, that is, that is sexually loose? The good news to you is that Rahab the harlot is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, That Christ came to save sinners, and that there is forgiveness for everyone who believes in him. Tamar, Rahab, there's a third woman. We find it in verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite woman, returned to Israel after her husband's death with her mother-in-law, Naomi. She was a Moabitist. Do you know what that means? It means that she was a descendant of Lot through incest. When Malon married Ruth, it was against the law of God. And yet, God graciously made her to be a part of the people of God and the grandmother of David and the ancestress of Christ. There's another woman, I'm sure you notice that's mentioned in this genealogy We find her in verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That is Bathsheba. David with Bathsheba. An unholy union, this adultery, murder, and yet here she is in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Spurgeon said, "...signal was the grace of God in this case, that the line should be continued in this once guilty pair. But oh, what kinship with fallen humanity does this indicate in our Lord?" Now, every person who is mentioned in this genealogy except the Lord Jesus Christ was a sinner. Only Jesus, the Son of God incarnate, is without sin. Some who are in this genealogy were notorious sinners. Some were terribly victimized by other sinners. But in this long, dark, incomprehensible river of the plan of God, real grace came to real sinners. Tamar. Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and he uses the history of others such as the kings to bring his redemption to the world. God did not send his son into the world for good people. God sent his son into the world to save sinners, to redeem the lost, Every human inhabitant of heaven was a sinner, saved by grace. No one deserves to be there. It is all because of the grace and sovereign mercy of God in Christ. Everyone who is saved is saved by sovereign grace. Jews and Gentiles, not only Jews, the gospel message now preached to the world And in the most Jewish of the gospels, Matthew, the most Jewish of all of the gospels, Tamar, a Canaanite, Rahab, a Canaanite, Ruth, a Moabitess, Bathsheba, the wife of a Hittite, because Jesus is the savior of the world because he has redeemed a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. And so, foreigner, estranged from Christ, outcast because of your sin, fallen in your depravity, displaced, sinned against, wicked yourself. The genealogy of Jesus is here to say to you, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should never perish, but have everlasting life. Because, people of God, we are told in Romans 5 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly, he justifies the ungodly. And so for some of you who think that you can do works that will make you acceptable with God, why did Christ come? Why was he born in Bethlehem? Why did he grow up? Why did he go to a cross if you could save yourself from your sin? And so I hope you see along with me that in this genealogy, this indeed is a marvelous, marvelous, marvelous thing to see. That he came for sinners, and he came for all sorts of sinners, from all walks of life. Men, women, children, Jew, Gentile. But there's a fifth thing to see. Yes, the final. In this genealogy, I want us to see the capstone of the genealogy. And the capstone is found in verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Now, Matthew makes it plain that Joseph did not beget Christ. We will see that when we come to the next section next time. But Christ condescended to have an adoptive father and to be part of his legal genealogy. The point of this genealogy, it's here as the first chapter of Matthew, because Matthew, in this Jewish gospel, wants his readers to see the Messiah for whom there has been longing through history has come. He has arrived. He has come. Now, did you notice that there are three groups of 14 generations you see here in verse 17, look at it. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now this is significant. Seven, of course, is the number of perfection in Scripture. And we have seven twice over, 14 demonstrating that the Savior of the world who has come is absolutely perfect. But there's something else. In the Hebrew language, as every student of Hebrew learns, the letters of the Hebrew alphabet actually are given numerical value. Every letter has a numerical value. Can you guess what the numerical value of the name David is? 14, the Messiah has come, the son of David has arrived, the one who sits upon David's throne, the son of David, the king, people of God, the king has come. Isn't this genealogy worth your time and energy? You know, I'm reminded of what old John Murray said. He said, the Bible scholars work sometimes as dry as dust. But then it's gold dust. Yes, the Messiah has come. Stuart Custer says Leon Morris notes that the number 14 would have been impressive to first century Jews. It is clear that God is working out his will in cycles of perfect symmetry, he is working out his will in cycles of perfect symmetry and people of God. He is still doing that. And people of God, you are a part of it, whether you see it or not. So Matthew's purpose in this genealogy, Jesus, the true and perfect Messiah, has come and brings the covenant blessings of his gospel to the nations. And that gospel has come in the providence of God for you who are sitting here this morning. That gospel has come to us sinners who need the grace of God. God has directed the times and the moments, and he directs them still, so that not one person is sitting under the gospel this morning by accident, but according to God's plan. And so it is a genealogy through which we see that the Father stretches out his loving arms to his people and calls sinners to faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is a father who says, Look at this genealogy. Behind it is my eternal plan to save sinners. Look at this genealogy. Throughout history, I've been bringing him to the world. Look at this genealogy. He's now come. He's arrived for sinners. Look, look, look. And in this genealogy, see my hands stretch forth to draw you near. Unto my son for your salvation. And so why did he come? Why was he born? Every believer in Christ knows, every redeemed person understands that behind all of this is my misery and my need. And the Messiah has come, that he might live a perfect life because my life is sinful. He obeyed the law that I broke. He has come that he might go to the awful cross and there pay the penalty due unto my sins and to bear my hell in my place. He was born that he might die. And having died upon a cross, he came that through his powerful resurrection and ascension on high, he might pour forth his spirit and call sinners unto himself. And so if you are lost and you are undone, and perhaps you've said this morning, why all this talk about about Nashon and Salmon and the wife of Uriah and Hezekiah and Manasseh? It's because God has revealed to us in this text that he, through history, would send his son into the world to save sinners just like you. And so if you are lost and you do not know Jesus Christ, do not leave this place without breathing out a prayer and saying to God, Oh God, I am guilty. I am a sinner. That it would require your son to come into the world to save sinners. I am moved to the depths of my soul to think that he he came to save sinners. And Lord, I am a sinner. And I am guilty, 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 and I need a Savior. And I see from this text that the Savior of sinners has come, and his name is Jesus Christ. Come to him, trust in him, put your faith in him, believe in him, and you are saved for time and for eternity. And God's people said, Amen.